With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It is I, your. <laughs> it is I, your. Uh, which one should I take? There's so many to choose from. I'm gonna go with your um, uh, uh, sexy magic lady, Yennefer, is who I'm referring to. Hold a McNeely bruiser. What? Which? Oh my God! Let me start over. I am your uh, mean and sexual <laughs> wizard. Hold it, McNeely. And it's me, Dunny, the urchin of Enderwald. I'm a, I'm a fucking, I'm a porcupine. I'm a porcupine. Spoilers. I'm a porcupine. And tis I, your bruiser, Geralt of Rivia. Hold it, McNeely. What? That's, Holden, that's a terrible character. Yeah, it's got to be more that. It's got to be more that. Uh, it is definitely more that. I it's been... hungover Solid Snake. Yes, it is. It's hungover Solid Snake. He's always hungover. Actually, I mean, he is a bit of a big drinker, though. We'll talk more about Geralt. Um, this has been a lot of fun because we're talking about adaptations on top of adaptations on top of adaptations. And it's really been fascinating to watch the new show on Netflix and to see it succeed, I think. It's yeah. succeeding. It's really popular. It's honestly, uh, just to put this entire episode in a state of time and place, uh, watching America go fucking batshit for the Mandalorian and then just kind of like, low, then seeing The Witcher just kind of like bust its nut because Netflix is dumb and just makes everything available all at once mm-hmm. is like, the Netflix, you got to stop. We could be in the middle of like week six of Witcher Mania, but instead it was just like a really solid day and a half. Yes, absolutely. I definitely slammed through it. So many other people have. I think it's really great. I I mean, not to talk about the show because we guys, we're going to talk about the books. We're going to talk about the games and we're going to talk about the show. Also, a quick note. We're not really going to talk a lot about the history of CD Projekt Red as we will what? be speaking more towards that. And no, 
Did you do a bunch of work on the history of CD Projekt Red? I mean, I, I, yeah, it's part of the deal. Well, yeah, but I'm focusing. We are going to do a specific. I thought we talked about this. We're going to do a specific CD Projekt Red episode when we get to Cyberpunk 2077. All right, as long as I can extract more content out of the work I've done. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, please go into the good tidbits. <laughs> what we're talking about. Uh, CD Projekt Red in the background as a framework for how this all came to be. I mean, I'm definitely not going to sidestep it completely, but uh, I want to focus more on game design and things of that nature when we get to that episode. Whereas this will be much more about the story of The Witcher, about adaptation, about um, a a little (laughs) video game studio that could, taking a big risk by acquiring the rights to the series and how it really busted the doors open for them and all of their careers and then this little show that could again it's really an amazing it's a constant little witcher that could all throughout i feel like it's uh just like from one guy who decided to get into writing in his late 30s to this game development company that like i said took a, a really big risk that didn't know if they were even going to be able to pull off what they had sought to do by acquiring those rights and then this TV show that came seemingly out of nowhere, video game adaptations, even though this is adapted from the books, I think a lot of people see it as a video game adaptation. They definitely pulled from the games. Right. Those usually never fly. I guess Netflix is the only one kind of pulling it off with Castlevania oh, yeah. a little bit and some things of that nature. Uh, but also just sort of coming out of nowhere, getting critically panned and then becoming uber popular on Netflix is a really cool story as well. And the little Henry Cavill that could <laughs> and his whole amazing journey, which I, yeah, it's a lot. It's and the wit, and that's so great because it, it it's the, the rug that ties this whole room together is the Witcher really is also this interesting underdog tale in a lot of ways. People disrespect with the Witcher mm. people shit on the way, like as much as he's revered and as much of a badass as he is, he also goes into towns and people look at him bad and he's you know and they turn their backs on him and see him as this representation of everything evil and terrible in the world you know and uh it's it's he's a hard and that's why he's such a hardened person and then it really takes these different ladies in his life to both challenge and soften this man and uh i think that that's that's a fascinating well, Tail. every good uh, noir hero needs a, a dame or two to keep ah, him on the. Uh, that's what you're path. calling this a, a, a noir. Geralt of Rivia is the most like I, I'm not the first person who have who made this distinction. Okay. It's like that makes a lot of sense immediately to me. You saying the that. occupation of Witcher is almost one to one with the occupation of the private detective. You know, he's out there sorting through people's like. Uh, kind of weird business. He's taking out, quote unquote, the spooky things in the night. And he uh, can effortlessly move between the peasantry and the gentry and learns all their fucked up secrets as he's out there uh, under the presumption that he's a professional. He's out there to do a job. Literally, Raymond Chandler has a description of how to in his how to write a murder mystery uh, book. Down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean. This man, the detective, is neither tarnished nor afraid. He is the hero. He is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man, and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor, by instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it. Mm. The whole point of everything from, especially in The Witcher uh, 3, where you literally have Batman detective vision, yes, is he's this world-weary guy, he's been put through the ringer, he's been brought high, he's been brought low, 
and he just kind of uh, recognizes humanity for kind of the shit that it is, but lives by his own code, and that has to be good enough, even when it gets him in trouble. Geralt of Rivia is the most noir hero in like modern modern fiction. And that makes so much sense because the world he lives in is very dark and twisted and it's you always hear the phrase in the show they say it multiple times the lesser of two evils. It, nothing is ever bright and sunny and happy in this world. Oh everything has some <laughs> fucked up underbelly to it. Everything has some twist to it that is just so awful and and tragic. And a ton of Witcher quests and stories kind of end on that like you know forget it Jake it's Chinatown like like, yeah, you're, you're not going to fix this. Yes. You just got to move on. A hundred percent. And that's what made it so great for me playing it. So I played through all of The Witcher 3, The Wild Hunt. I have not played the first two games. The Witcher 3 knocked my socks off. First of all, it came at a time in my life when I was perpetually broke. So it really was the game I played that year. What was that? 2016, 2015? It was the game I played that year. I, I There were a few others, but I was just blown away at the sheer amount of content held in that game and then the dlcs come out and the dlcs are fucking incredible some mm -hmm. of the best content in the whole game uh especially what was it blood and wine i believe is what it's called uh blood and wine is the one in in fantasy france right? yes and with vampires that is a incredible piece of DLC from beginning to end almost better than the game itself because the game itself gets a bit long-winded a bit <laughs> overblown um it is like it is maybe too much content too many hours of stuff I will say I also did pretty much everything that you can do in the game <laughs> like well not not everything you can do any of the smaller collectible stuff but every major side quest and every that it presents with you, every story beat, all of that stuff, I, I got through all of it. And I'm, I'm sure it was over 100 hours of gameplay time by the end of it, if not more. It really was just my year of gaming. And I was just in love with it. And one of the main things I loved about it was, you know, when you play through, I think I just played through the Mass Effect trilogy. And as much as I appreciated that style of here is the Paragon choice and here is the Renegade choice. Essentially, here's the good guy choice and here's the bad guy choice. In Witcher, that never existed at any point. In Witcher, it was always trying to weigh within myself what I felt was the right thing to do, mm -hmm. even though none of it was going to be, quote unquote, the right thing to do because everything came at a cost. And oh, I thought that was God. so it's, good. I Doing research for this, I found a thousand breathless nerd essays about how it's like, I thought monster bad guy, but then turns out yeah. other person bad guy but then it turns out everyone bad uh, guy you must be reading jick jones that is that sounds very <laughs> jick jones he's one of my favorites because he talks like frankenstein <laughs> everybody bad guy writing good i just i he makes me cry every time i read his essays because they're so bad uh <laughs> yeah yeah there's of course there's a million nerds like me who feel this way also the other thing about the games that was so great was that you would you, you unlike in games like Red Dead or GTA or other open world games like you know I don't want to just call them out any open world game has all these little quests where it's like help me help me there's like a girl on the side of the road help me help me it's like my pa needs the the medicines to to heal him and you're like all right I'll get you the medicines now and then you just go get the medicines and then you bring them back to the girl and she's like thank you and then there's like a million other fetch quests like that that not, none of them have any emotional weight or anything but in the witcher every little thing that was like that would turn into this giant quest tree 
that was mind-blowing. And if nothing else, you would at least get this really cool story tidbit, and it would never just be feel like a run-of-the-mill fetch quest. I don't think I did a single run-of-the-mill fetch quest in that game that at least didn't have some fascinating story things behind it to give it, it, it any kind of weight. I mean, the way the World of the Witcher 3 specifically was crafted is one of the greatest achievements in game development. Um, I actually played a little bit of The Witcher 2 when it first came out because it had such a weird, like... A uh, cult uh, energy mm-hmm, behind it, mm-hmm. and uh, I have it downloaded, and I'm afraid. Oh, it's one of those. I'm forever. afraid to pop it open because it just seems like it's going to be too. Everybody much Everybody ha- got it through a Steam sale for five dollars. Right. Uh, I remember my computer at the time struggling as all hell to run it. I remember uh, getting overwhelmed by just how insane the combat is. It was like, yeah, it was like Dark Souls ish combat with eight extra mechanics on top of it. Uh-huh, <laughs> it's just like uh-huh. you had to do. Uh, traps you had to do all this sort of thing and it, it was weirdly uh, appropriate because in the original books Geralt is a video game character he has the signs he has yes. the blade oils he has the potions he literally takes quests for a living that's yeah. what he does he accepts quests from people and they give him conversation choices that he he's, and he's always given choices that he has to just make you know uh, some sort of decision based on whatever, you know? Uh, yeah, so a lot of video game stuff for sure. And then the show works so well. I almost wish there was a little bit less overlying uh, plot and a little bit more one-off Monster Hunt episodes. That's my only criticism of the show. I, w- I wanted more Monster Hunts, more like, uh, what do they call them? Um, Short stories? No, those episodes in television that that when they happen, they have nothing to do with like the one-offs, bottle episodes, whatever. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, bottle episodes. Uh, to, for of that, I want. I just wanted to have him getting into crazy shenanigans and having to deal with figuring out how to maneuver around different types of monsters in the world. Well, that's uh, part of the way that the books are constructed. They started as obviously short stories and like fantasy uh, magazines, mm-hmm. and then as it got more popular, it then became this. Game of Thronesian political yeah, gigantic saga these wars, which I'm enjoying all of that political intrigue, and it's clearly this show. The way I described it in my in my head was this show exists somewhere between a Xena and a Game of Thrones. It absolutely does, like monetarily, just every like quality wise, like all of it, right? Not to say that Xena is, and I I'm, I want to say not to say that Xena is bad, but Xena is just like a little show that could mm-hmm. that that had to work against a low, much lower budget than a lot of other shows of its kind, and had a lot of heart, right? Mm-hmm. So it, and that shone through. Whereas Game of Thrones is, of course, this pageantry of this crazy budget HBO, all this stuff behind it. You know what I mean? And this exists somewhere in between where I'll sometimes I'll see fight sequences where I'm like, that looks like a Game of Thrones fight sequence. Oh, the every literally nobody can watch the first episode yeah. without breathlessly talking about that Renfrey Geralt yes. sword fight. Super cool. But then there are other moments where you see a little bit of the cracks in the walls yeah. a little bit more than you do in say a Game of Thrones, at least before. I have a hunch I know what you're talking about. <laughs> also, weirdly enough, watching this with Marie, I was like terror I was just yeah, Lexi like, loving this show, by the way, yeah. Because they have, like, it was a female showrunner, a lot of female writers, so even with the, like, giant, bloody, moaning titties everywhere. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it still had a very human perspective that, like, made it more than just cheesecake and swords and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She also really likes Dandelion. She's really into the bard. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so in the games, he's Dandelion. Oh, yeah, what's his name in this? I didn't in, even For a second, look. I thought it was, like, a different character because we're. I was, like, halfway doing research, halfway trying to figure out the timelines because the timeline is uh, fucked yeah. up. Yeah, by the way, yeah, if you haven't seen the show yet, it is... 
all over the place. And the thing that frustrates me about it, sorry to side note a little bit, thing that frustrates me about it is I don't feel like they really did enough a aging work with the oh, makeup. Yeah. So they all just look like they're existing at any given time. Like you have to put it all together by uh, just different elements about what they're saying and things going on around them. But anyways, yeah, so with uh, Dandelion. Oh, on top of that, the games take place in a holy, in theory, like after the events of everything yes. in the books and the show. Yes. So it's, it's and the aging there is all fucked up. Mm -hmm. So Jaskier is the Polish word for buttercup. Okay. And so when it was originally translated in the books, the localization they decided on because it's too on the nose to call him Buttercup in English, uh -huh. was Dandelion, like, you okay. know, a dandy, a yes. fancy man. Of course. But Dandelion is localized from the games, so they couldn't call him Dandelion. They had to call him Jaskier. I just don't understand why they didn't call him Jaskier in the first place. We didn't need the translation on that name. No, Jaskier because is Buttercup, a great name. Buttercup is like, uh, you know. It's, it's a cute, yeah. They want, okay, so the, our, the, our author's intention was for him to have, like, a goofy, cute name. Yeah. Okay, well, I think it's time to jump into it. Get Cast into your the... mind to the happiest place in the world, Poland, in the late 80s, early 90s. And, uh, of course, Geralt, I think we, we, we've we already mentioned this pretty much, but just that he is a monster hunter for coin. That is what he is. He's also a very – there's not a lot of witchers out there uh, in the world, and he comes from a very select group. Uh, he was abandoned at an early age, and he – is put through these tests in order to become a witcher. And in that case, even, it's like only three children survive the test out of every 10 that gets submitted for it. It's a brutal process that he was put through. He's got a lot of ghosts uh, that he battles with, demons rather, that he battles with. And so I'll just leave it at that. And oh, well, and then you have Yennefer, his uh, lusty mage kind of girlfriend siri who he ends up having to take in essentially spoiler alert for the show taking in as almost a daughter and uh then you thanks to the love surprise surprise and then you have tris which we don't meet really much in the show we, we meet her a little bit her She's role is heightened greatly in the games yeah and uh by the time you get to witcher 3 the game they have to kind of square that circle i where shacked up with her she was yeah. my girl uh, I, I, back you in choose the, a lover. You can choose between Triss or Jennifer or no one, uh, but you have to pick a lover. In, the I, in one of our old episodes, I still don't remember, but Marcus specifically talked about how, uh, you know, in life, you got to choose. Are you going to end up with a Jennifer or a Triss? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are you going to get the girl who knows exactly how fucked up you are or the one that's going to be like, hey, let's try not being fucked up? Yes, that's, <laughs> that's a great definition for the two of them. So this is originally a series of books written by Andrzej Sepkowski, who is hilarious, and I've got some wonderful quotes for you Great all. Great interview. He's so funny, and he's so just so brash. And so if you've seen the show or played the games or anything, and you know that sense of humor that shines through in, in that stuff, it, it is so clearly a descendant of, of this guy's brain. He is hilarious. So he studied economics in college, started out as a senior sales representative for a foreign trade company, but pursued a passion for writing as well. And he started out as a translator of mainly science fiction. Uh, when he first got into the writing thing, he also just loved fantasy, read a ton of it. He was constantly, I think, traveling as a sales representative. Yep. So he was always just grabbing these sci-fi and fantasy rags and checking them out and just was an avid, avid reader. And therefore, uh, at that point, a scholar, even though he never went to school for it or anything like that, he, he knew it inside and out. Uh, so he writes his first short story, The Witcher, at age 
38. I'm sorry, you're talking about Deweedsman? Deweedsman, yes. Deweedsman, which there's some translation stuff going on there. Isn't it, what's the direct... It's not Witcher directly translated, right? It's something else. It's like the Hexer, right? Well, it's very... So I I honestly... I tried to get to the bottom of this, and I couldn't quite get there. But like... Witch, like kind of like he's a like witch man. He's a witchman. <laughs> it's the male version of a witch, essentially, yeah. is what. Um, when the books were adapted to a even more Xena-like cheap TV show in Poland, uh, it, for international audiences, it was known as the Hexer. Yes, okay. because it, they didn't know quite how to translate witchman. But oddly enough, it was a failed game development project by Studio Metropolis before even CD Projekt Red got involved, mm. that first brought the character out as the Witcher. That was their idea to call him the Witcher. And then from there, it's very weird how like, because of the way localization works, the people who translate the books and the people who translate the games all kind of, in order to hold on to f the weird clusters of fans that have found the works through various ways, they can't drop names as easily as you think they can. Right. So. The Witcher came from a failed game development ah. uh, long the, a couple of years before CD Projekt Red got involved. That's interesting. So uh, he writes this at 38 years old, and it was actually specifically for a contest held by a sci-fi and fantasy magazine called Fantastica. It also had to be under 30 pages. I always, I always pronounce it as Fantaskaya. 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 <laughs> uh, it had to be under 30 pages. Sapkowski said, I wrote love letters longer. He felt he couldn't write a classic fantasy in that little space, so he went on uh, reimagining a Polish fairy tale, but wanted to make it real. He said, soldiers and knights, they are idiots, generally. This is one of my first favorite quotes from Subcastle. Can I get you way. angrier and Polisher? Yeah. Soldiers and knights? How does Polish talk like these? <laughs> no, no, but I like Like angry, large, <laughs> pounding man? <laughs> No? Is that not a good Polish accent? It's fine. Soldiers and knights, they are idiots generally. They talk like Stimpy and Ren and Stimpy. Yes. And priests want only the money and fucking adolescence. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So, there he's saying that priests only want money and to have sex with children. Mm -hmm. So, who's killing monsters? Professionals. You don't call poor cobblers apprentices. You call for professionals. So, then I invented the professional. Which I really dig. And this also does have a Leon the Professional vibe to it with Siri and everything that I think is kind of great. He gets third place, which was a surprise to him. And he felt he could have won if fantasy had a better reputation in Poland at the time. Sepkowski said, I'm just going to say it as a normal person. Back then in Poland, fantasy was considered something for stupid children who couldn't even masturbate properly. <laughs> another, that's probably my second favorite Sepkowski quote. So the short story is published in Fantastica in 1986 and was a hit, which led to a cycle of tales based on the character, including three collections of short stories and five novels. And by the way, had not planned to write anything past this first short story. It was all because the fans were so hungry for more, and he really wanted to give them what they wanted. And I think that was mainly because he was such a fan of fantasy, and he understood how awful it was to not get re releases from authors. George mm -hmm. R. Martin. Uh, you know what I mean? And and not 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 get to more when you crave it. So. He started working on him, and, and it was very rare at that time for a Polish person to put out a fantasy novel, but he did so starting in 1994 with Blood of Elves, which was the start of a pentology of novels. And he just 
like I said, understood how important it was. So that's why he ended up finishing his Witcher saga in 1999. So he wrote all, he put a novel out a year starting in 94. He said, third favorite quote from Sepkowski, if only George R. R. Martin wrote as quickly. Do you know I know him personally? We are friends. We know each other. We drink unbelievable quantities of beer. So the first uh, Witcher story, known as The Witchman, uh, is basically the Striga episode of the TV show. Okay. He goes to King Foltes. He meets a bunch of people. They got to figure out uh, what to do about this monster that's run amok in this abandoned castle, and he has to, like, survive the night with it. And it has a ton of everything. I, I actually read this one story. Cool. Um, and it has a ton of what we know now as, like, a classic Witcher story. Uncovering secrets fr- among, like, royalty that they're trying to keep buried. Yeah. Dueling loyalties. Uh, idiot peasants who get mouthy and end up getting murdered. <laughs> Even stuff as simple as like, uh, uh, they don't name it, but the Quen Shield. He talks about how he's protected by an orange aura. It very much uh, matches up to what the show is. Basically, uh, all of these early stories uh, are wrapped up in The Last Wish, which was the last Witcher book to come out chronologically, but it is almost key to reading first if you actually want to get into the story of the witcher yeah there is by the way uh, a lot of guys out there that tell you which order you should approach the books in as you don't necessarily just want to pick up the very first story that he put out i saw that it's very interesting and uh, that's crazy though the last book in the pentology they recommend to read before a lot of the other stuff jay oh yeah 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 because uh, once you get into uh blood of elves and uh Time all the all the full size novels, you better have already known the difference between Nilfgaard and the Northern Kingdoms and like which uh, royal line of Sintra uh-huh. and Siri is supposed to be a part of uh-huh. and the Law of Surprise and all this stuff comes together. Like you're just supposed to know. Can this you shit. explain the Law of Surprise to me? I still don't. <laughs> I still don't. It is so clutch to everything that happens in the world of Witcher. So some some version of the life debt. Like uh, instead of when someone rescues, saves your life or in terms of payment, witchers can just say, like, you don't owe me money. I'll take the law of surprise. It means that at a later date, someone can just like kind of swoop in and claim something that like uh, someone has earned. In surprise. Theory, yeah. Because that to the best of my knowledge, this is how I understand how it works. Because you saved that person's life, everything that they will from that point on earn in life. It creates a destiny. You are owed. Okay. Or or it, it because it's greatly tied, even though surprise would make you think chaos, it is greatly tied to destiny. So that's where things get weird is yeah. it seems like just this weird law of chivalry. But then in this world, everyone from the lowest peasant to the highest emperor understands that if you renege on the law of surprise, the universe will just fuck you will, over and make, make it, it make it yours. Gotcha. Uh, that so, is a great that that actually clears that up for me a little bit. But sure. uh, yeah, yeah. In other Witcher stories, the law of surprise is like a you know a, like a, a a litter of puppies or a bumper crop or something. But it is considering how much it comes into play, especially with the story of Geralt and Ciri. Just a like it's it's literally like it's as if the entirety of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, was based on someone yelling shotgun to get yeah. in the front seat of a yeah. car. <laughs> uh, all right. I want to get into the game. So you have anything else to talk about the books as they are for now? Ooh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> it's not loaded. It's a pure question. Um, so <laughs> this was an article that got published in Fantasia magazine in 1993. 
that talks about like what it means to do Polish fantasy and is Polish fantasy a specific thing. And uh, in his eyes, he is drawing from the same literary tradition as uh, J.R.L. Tolkien and uh, Michael Moorcock. That's just his name. That's fine. It's just his I'm name. fine with that name. I have no issues with that name. And that it's, you know, we grew up. <laughs> it's a Moorcock. He wants more of it. Bowling for cock. Huh? Did Whatever. That he movie? was the writer of the Elric series. <laughs> Elric, the original white ponytailed warrior guy who wanders around everywhere. I will say to uh, Jackie, upon viewing a picture of Henry Cavill as Geralt, became incredibly horny. So it is, I think, really working for the ladies out there. But here's the thing. You can't just show a picture of, like, yeah, 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 muscles, whatever. Uh, but it's that, you know, he's he's attentive. Yes. He's very attentive. Like, he he... Acts like he doesn't need you, but he super does. Let's be honest. The sexiest thing Henry Cavill has ever done is in the trailer for that Mission Impossible movie where he reloads his arms <laughs> in that one fight scene. <laughs> He's just holding it up, and then all of a sudden, yeah. got to reload those arms for good punching. Super cool. So he talks about how, you know, who knows what Polish fantasy is. You know, uh, Polish... Uh, romanticism, Polish uh, folklore is full of like not wizards, but like weird, dirty prophets, and like the monsters aren't as as beautiful as like the the noble dragon. They're a little bit like grosser, and he's drawing from stuff like uh, fairy tales and mythology, and he that fantasy is kind of children's stories adapted for adults. Like you take the world of children's yes. stories. Without the moral imperatives. Add some tits, add some curses, and we're good. So it's so he's he's just a very unique guy. He's just a very like he you know he traveled the world. He's uh, he had a unique perspective of getting access to Western media at a time where that stuff was really inaccessible to a lot of Polish people. Yeah, at a at a late age, he started just writing cool guy fantasy stories that then became a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now. Holden, tell me about Sede Project. Uh, yes, let's talk about it in the year two. Well, do you have stuff on before 2000, before they acquired the rights? Yes. Do you want to set the stage a little bit for us? All right. And then I will go into the, the rights acquirement section of all of this. So the thing you need to know about Sede Project is um, uh, it was founded by two guys, uh, Marcin Iwinski and Michael Kicinski. And this was the early 90s when the west was just opening up to poland you know the berlin wall fell communism bye bye and they started by just literally trading computer programs over mail and then making disc copies of the games because early 8-bit computers were making their way into the country uh this was profitable because you know if you weren't a nerd but you still had a home computer you didn't go to GameStop. GameStop didn't exist. You went to right. the local market where Marson and Michael were had, you know, copies ready to go. And because they were such nerds that were so connected to the greater world of gaming, they had games that the other stands didn't. So that was like their seed. What really pushed them over the edge was the rise of the CD-ROM. Mm. Because there was a magic couple of years there where CDs were great. For, you know, holding giant games like, uh, you know, Seventh Guest, Mist, that kind of stuff. But the average home uh, consumer did not have access to CD burners. So they imported games from the United States. 
according to the Noclip documentary about them. So yeah, a lot. Jake is yeah. pulling a lot of this right from the Noclip. Check out Noclip. They're a fucking amazing yeah. documentary series about video games and gaming on YouTube. Uh, Marcin got a hold of what was basically a pornography distributor who happened to have like a CD side business. Would import the discs, take them out of the box, and they would create their original Polish language box, original Polish language manual, and because they were the only people with that connection, they were making a killing selling CD-ROM games at that specific moment in time. Mm. They then made even more money when they were like, hey, what if we just started translating games ourselves? Which was unheard of at the time. You don't, you know, either the developer themselves charges a lot of money or the publisher puts up a lot of money, and even then it's only translated to, you know, Spanish, German, and French, you know, the good European languages. Of course. Uh, the first game that they recorded original audio and, orig and original uh, uh, translations for was the Ace Ventura Pet Detective animated point-and-click adventure game, and it turned <laughs> out to be a huge hit. People uh, loved Jim Carrey. Of course, especially at that time. Uh, they then got even better when they uh, decided to do balls-to-the-wall do a Polish version of Baldur's Gate, which yes. they got involved with. That's Bioware. what really. That's what allowed them to get into this next bit of story. All original dialogue. It's special edition maps, special edition book inserts. You know, they were raising the bar for what the Polish market could come to expect from a game distributor, and they were making profit. They were making money, and uh, this gave them the kind of uh, uh, zhuzh they needed to make their own game. And what they had settled on, the, the project that they wanted to make for their first uh, a homegrown AAA Polish uh, computer game was obviously the homegrown Polish fantasy series, The Witcher. It is the year 2000. They are looking for a new game to make. They get in touch. Uh, Marcin Iwinski, the founder and CEO of CD Projekt Red, said, We got in touch with Sapkowski and we asked, we heard that the game is really not happening, and maybe we could talk. Now, that was because there was already another Polish mobile game company trying to make a Witcher game that was at a standstill. Sapkowski has no idea. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know what's going on. He he generally has a distaste for gaming. I'll talk about that in a second. He is doesn't know. He's clearly not, as much as he is a sales guy from his past, he's not necessarily that savvy of a business guy when it comes to this type of rights management stuff uh then i mean by see. this point he's pushing 50 he doesn't care he also just doesn't video games were so different back then you would never think nowadays translating giant a giant property like the witcher it would be a much bigger deal back then a jury was still out in terms of being able to do that type of quality of storytelling in a video game cd project red really busted some doors open in fact when it came to that so sapkowski has no idea what, where the rights are with the with the Witcher game and says, you find out. And they did. And it was not happening. So they go and ask. Uh, they So we asked them to make an offer. It wasn't a ton of money for CD Projekt Red, but Sapkowski said it was, quote, good money for Poland in 1997. Sapkowski said, I agreed they would write a completely new story using my characters, my ontology of this crazy world, but they ha would create completely new stories. I said, why not? Please, please, show how good you are. <laughs> it was part of the original contract. I believe in when all was said and done, they got the rights for like $9,500. Yeah. Oh, um, wow. And and again, it was a lot of money for him at the time. Yeah. 
for money that didn't necessarily exist because he wasn't thinking like, oh, this will be big video game money. You know, it just didn't work like that back then, especially for like an older writer that's not as savvy on gaming. But specifically their, yeah, their thing had to be not canon. And we'll, we'll get into that when we talk about the first game. So his opinion of gaming, he, he had a, these are some fun quotes. I do not play computer games as they are far beyond my sphere of interest. He said, okay, let's play cards or let's drink vodka, but killing Martians is stupid. And my standpoint stands, it is stupid. He's since softened on that. <laughs> I think he's since also has really, really looked at the Witcher series with a lot of regard and what they were able to do with his world. And he now greatly regrets selling the rights. He said, I was stupid enough to sell them rights to the whole bunch. They offered me a percentage of their profits. I said, no, there will be no profit at all. Give me all my money right now. The whole amount. Uh, It was stupid. I was stupid enough to leave everything in their hands because I didn't believe in their success. But who could foresee their success? I couldn't. (laughs) And I get that in a lot of ways because this is a virtually unknown game company. They've only done adaptations at this point of, of already made games Mm -hmm. so that they would end up becoming this massive entity. That is one of the biggest names in gaming at this point is shocking in hindsight. So, uh, I really enjoyed looking into the writing of this game, the process that they underwent. I didn't really look a lot into the technical stuff and Jake, maybe you've got some good stuff on that, but I was saving that for a later episode, but I did get a wonderful interview. Uh, I found from Marcin Blocka, the co-writer of the series mm-hmm. who joined CD project red in 2006. And she said at the time, There were few people in Poland who knew how to create game scripts. When I joined the team, the production of video games in Poland was a bit like the Wild West, a vast, limitless area where you don't know which direction to go in. With a lot of dangers lurking everywhere and numerous bonanzas to discover, I felt like a pioneer because everything had to be started from scratch. Everything would surprise you because it was the first time it happened. An incredible adventure. I really love that. She used a background in creating traditional role-playing games on paper with the mindset that you're not just writing a story, but creating something for others to have fun with. According to Blanca, you have to be aware of, for example, Aristotle and how a story is made up of three parts, a beginning, prologue, the development, episode, and an ending, exode. But in the case of games, you also have to know when to let the gamer respond to an event, how to formulate choices so that they're as credible as possible. One has to make a guess what the gamer will have in his on his mind while playing. So intuition is necessary. And I think that tabletop RPG thought process way better right Mm -hmm. because this again i really appreciate instead of saying here is the good option here is the bad option when you're playing DD, you don't get that when you're playing DD, you have a conversation with somebody and they leave it up to you to decide even though you're not inputting your own personal answers they're giving you choices with that are more ambiguous so that you're trying to answer them to the best of your abilities based on what they're saying but there's no obvious good guy answer, bad guy answer. And I think that that's a really brilliant approach. So for the first game they're you know, again, what, yeah, like you said, wild West, they don't know what they're doing and they try and make a couple of demos. Uh, you can find footage of this online. Looks real jank. Uh, there's a term uh, popularized by our frequent guests, uh, uh, from the old uh, Super Best Friends crew, Euro Jank. Uh, <laughs> the idea that, you know, they're so lofty and so based in PC kind of uh, re-kajiggering that, like, even if it doesn't quite work, the idea of so many systems happening at once is, like, 
too intoxicating for these developers. And again, this is the first game they're making, really. Um, they got to learn. Baldur's Gate, great thing to come off of to learn how to make a game like this. Baldur's Gate, of course, is a top-down mm -hmm. RPG that has a lot of this type of answering different question choices, stuff like that, grinding for experience, traveling through dungeons, heavy story stuff. That's all in there. So they're... It's kind of like how Hunter S. Thompson would write, would transcribe full-on Ernest Hemingway books. He would literally just type out the whole book just to feel what it, what it would be like to write a Hemingway book, to be Hemingway, just try to get as close to that as possible. In a way, they're doing that by creating Baldur's Gate, even though it had already been made, but, but just doing it themselves to be like, this is what it feels like to make one of these. They first uh, talked to Bioware to try and get access to the Neverwinter Nights engine, which was another D&D game. Mm -hmm. that uh, had a big impact in the PC market. The project end up, ends up taking long enough that instead they get the rights to the Aurora engine, which I believe was used in the first Mass Effect. Okay. And, uh, that would make a lot of sense. Even though you know these people are completely untested, you know they're, they're learning as they're doing, uh, Bioware gives them a hand up and they actually let them take the Witcher demo to E3 that year. And so they're being shown right alongside in the Bioware booth with uh, Jade Empire, which was, you know, their uh, Xbox original game with this kind of basically Chinese Knights of the Old Republic. Mm. And this gives them like a little bit of a zhuzh. They got like a little bit of buzz going and they're very excited. They're working with Interplay for a while, but then Interplay falls apart, which I think we've covered in our Fallout episodes. <laughs> and they're desperate to find a publisher. They end up hooking up with Atari, which isn't yes. the Atari that we know from the 1970s. Atari at that time was just another faceless uh, big money publisher, notoriously horrible to work for, and they make it. They make the game. It is complicated, has a bunch of systems. Famously, it has a seduction system where uh, if you get the right dialogue choices with all the female and uh, characters, it fades to black, and then you just get a nude trading card of the female character you were talking to. <laughs> so you can bang like dryads, naiads, wenches, and is, princesses. The games are horny, by the way. You, yeah, you go to, uh, I went to the bordello a few, on a few <laughs> occasions and made sex uh, to some women and then also did, you know, different sexual experiences with and, uh, different mages and things in the world. And because the games have to not be canonical to the books, it actually, the plot is very weird. It involves like basically at the end of Sapkowski's novel, Geralt kind of gets swept away into a fantastical kind of purgatory thing. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but they kind of, uh, they kind of uh, Frodo him. You know, he just kind of like gets shuffled off. And so he wakes up back in Temeria with like no memory of what happened. And so like a lot of the game is him just kind of like trying to figure out who the fuck he even is. And he's solving some kind of mystery at Kaer Morhen where um, he there's stolen Witcher mutagens and he has to like steal them back. Hmm. At the time, it gets very mixed reviews because it is very janky. It is very awkward. Some people are like, like, what is this crazy Polish universe? Like, who is this guy? It was greatly a tribute to Poland and Polishness, according to Blacha. At least I always treat the game that way. If the world must be filled with something, we look for inspiration for something we feel attached to, something important to us that associates with things we think warmly about. You then naturally make recollections about your past, about what surrounds you, what you've read, and what an impression uh, and what had an impression on you. These are all those beloved bricks we use to create the game's world, and it's it just has all these different Polish references in it. 
uh, showing a passion for the culture that others may not get on the surface, but they had an excitement for that stuff. Our method to get the gamer interested is to show him what we like ourselves and tell him, look how great it is. How could you not love it? As it turns out, this works not only with Polish gamers, but with those abroad as well. Uh, the game does not get a proper marketing push. It does not get a proper console port. Uh, and in the end, um, just they're, the studio is in trouble. They burned a ton of money trying to make this game. It took them a while to do it, and they didn't earn enough money back. And Atari is breathing down their necks. And at a certain point, the head honchos of CD Projekt end up having to cede a lot of money and control. But they get to stay open, and they get to make a sequel. Aha, uh -huh. Yes. And that sequel does much better, right? Much better. Yes. Uh, it was. It still has its, its obscurities. It still has its challenge. We mentioned earlier. It's it's bizarre, way too complex fighting mechanics stuff. And I know it was always that game that for re people really into RPGs they dug, but it didn't have the same worldwide success that Witcher Three Wild Hunt had. So. They switch to the red engine. They stop using Bioware's tech. But a lot of what we consider witchery kind of game mechanics are solidified there. The branching story paths, the kind of murky morality, the uh, political intrigue between the warring kingdoms. I don't know. It's a great game to watch a let's play of, yeah. for lack of a better word. Yeah, for Playing sure. was not as pleasant. But, uh, you know, watching someone else with a much better computer just go through the story right. beats, it's you can't appreciate a, it. It was definitely seen as a hardcore thing. That opening sequence where you're doing, like, a full siege of a castle is very cool. For sure. For sure. Uh, I wanted to talk about this. Blacha explained the writing process. She wrote on all three. I believe female. I could be wrong. I hope I'm not fucking that up. She wrote on all three of the games that have come out. She said for the first game... She was joined by two writers and by seven for the third game. And I want to talk about this process. It takes years. The first stage is a huge brainstorm with the team in which they plot out the story and develop the world. Then each team member picks parts of the script. And uh, it's a guy. It's a guy. It's, it's, uh, it kind of has Mike Drucker vibes. Dude, just a bro. Uh, all right. This man, this human man, was joined by two writers and then seven uh, for two writers for the first game, seven writers for the third game. And so, yeah, they do, they're doing this brainstorm for the first year, approximately. They develop the world. Each team member then picks a part of the script or multiple parts of the script that they like the most and specifically write those out. Lastly is the – and that that's the second part of the process. And then lastly is the production phase in which they are writing dialogue, playing the game, then modifying what they wrote. Blotch has said, sometimes the modifications are quite dramatic. It can be a bit like putting out a fire. Suppose we delete some quest and there's a gap. If the script has a tree structure, it can turn out we've removed a major branch from which smaller branches grow. Then one has to think about how to handle that and make it all fine. So it sounds very difficult, especially that production process where they're literally they're writing stuff, putting it in the game, playing it, getting notes, changing it just working constantly one of the things that they achieved is a uh extremely unique workflow where the environmental designers the uh level designers the quest designers the animators the cinematic uh directors the voice directors are all like working hard on their specific thing without really uh interacting with everyone else and like still managing to make sure that everything is done and everything's on the same page. There's a, a great GDC talk uh, called Optimizing Content Pipelines for, uh, for Open World Games 
by uh, the technical artist uh, Martin Thorzen, uh, where he gets into how when developing The Witcher 3, they actually had this amazing system where every single thing was kind of uh, logged into a massive database. Like, a, like imagine a single text file like that's 10 gigabytes large. And so uh, that could then output into just simple pictures. So you could see, oh, this area has way too many polygons uh, loading in. This will slow down systems. You got to take out trees. This area has like too many lighting sources. Like, and, and in addition to that, they can see parts of the map that have been kind of neglected, parts that are a little bit more empty. Mm-hmm. And so by evenly distributing all the assets and tricks and just raw creative energy across the entire map, uh, they managed to achieve what their goal was, which is at least this sounded amazing to me. Uh, the goal for The Witcher was every 30 seconds, something should catch your eye. Uh-huh. Something either there's like a, a an enemy encounter a like a, a point of a point of interest a new quest marker just every 30 seconds something will grab your attention and it does i think for sure the other big thing for me with the witcher there was a revelation that i think has been iterated on now at this point up until then the gold standard was skyrim and games like it and even though the world of the witcher is dark thematically the Witcher was the first RPG I played where, oh my God, sun is shining through the trees. It is absolutely beautiful. It is a vibrant, bright world. The, there is so much greenery and beauty and all the flora and fauna everything that you is can getting, find. Everything from your hair to your horse's mane to the grass to the trees are getting whipped by wind. And that's a fidelity thing, I think. I think they had to make things darker back then. It'd be Graphically, it just led to that, that they didn't have as good... Uh, of software and hardware to work with mm-hmm. back then. And that was a good way to skirt around certain issues that came with lighting. But boy, oh boy, do I love, did I love just finally having like a bright, shiny world as opposed to a gloomy, mm-hmm. upsetting world. That's always like rainy and dark. I'd get that vitamin D witcher. I mean, imagine, you know, you get the open nature vibes of Skyrim. You get the graphic fidelity of fallout 4 you get the actual decent morally interesting story writing from uh-huh. a fallout new vegas mm-hmm. and you get like the good combat of like a zelda game all working together it's it's truly incredible what they did absolutely the script let's talk about truly incredible the script four hundred fifty thousand words long mm-hmm. uh 950 speaking roles and it was localized in 15 languages it's fun to uh listen to witcher dialogue in japanese i will say that oh for sure it's also just insane to think about the voice acting that went into this game with the witcher 3 specifically in all the games uh just incredible stuff and, uh, yeah, that's the video games. Oh, yeah, I wanted to talk about this as a poster before we get into the TV show. Sepkowski, super pissed off with all the the publishers for the book are like, oh, there's a successful game series. And if you look up, if you Google the books, every cover of the books now is a picture from one of the video games. <laughs> and, he, and, and it makes him look like he's adapting the games into a book series. And he super hates it. He he uh, he said uh, even a fan has even said this to his face, thinking mistaking him for adapting the game. It happened. He said, I can remember my reaction. I know I know many bad words and I used all of them in many languages, <laughs> though he does admit that they did a great job of making it. Yeah, it did that between that and fucking up on selling them the rights with a, on a flat fee is definitely 
fucked with him. Well, uh, it's actually come to light in very recent memory. Like the news stories are coming out this week that uh, Sapkowski and CD Projekt Red have come to a new agreement. Uh, they have not stated the awesome. amount. Sapkowski officially demanded payment of $16 million, Okay. Uh, for uh, missed royalties. Those games made a lot. Those games made uh, a lot, the, a lot. The two have reached a new agreement, and according to the press release, it, quote, satisfies and fully clarifies the needs and expectations of both parties. Nice. Very good. Definitely check out so The Witcher 3. So they tossed 3. a coin to their weedsman. <laughs> they tossed a coin to their weedsman. And definitely check out Witcher 3 Wild Hunt if you are curious after we now talk about it. Now available on Nintendo Switch. That's right. It is. Oh, man, that's not going to be chuggy at all. <laughs> I would definitely suggest playing it on console or PC. 28 frames per second. I definitely would suggest probably playing it on <laughs> PlayStation, Xbox, or, or the PC. Uh, here we go. Let's talk about the TV series. I am coming fresh off of it. I had a blast the watching Hexer it. The Hexer on Polish television. Yes. Was, I, you can find the, they made a movie version of it. I look into the old it's show. It's hilarious. Is it super dumb? Uh, and I posted the thing on my Twitter. Uh, you know, in the show, that uh, segment where they hunt the dragon? Mm-hmm. The CG on the Polish dragon Toss is- Toss a hump to your dragon. It's something out of <laughs> Shrek. It's genuinely hilarious. That's amazing. So- the TV series created by Lauren Schmidt Hisrich. Hisrich. I've never had to say it out loud. I know. And I was like, I'm going to have to say this out loud at some point. It's going to be difficult for me. She got a BA in English literature and creative writing at Wittenberg University in Ohio before moving to LA to write scripts. She started out with The West Wing, which is a pretty damn fine show to start out with as a writer. She did. She was a story editor. I, it looks like she was probably started out as a researcher and then ended up getting to write some episodes. She also wrote and produced on shows like Daredevil and The Umbrella Academy crossover. So Netflix trusted her to yes. make genre television. Yes. Uh, History said, the central idea of fantasy to me is to have real and grounded people that fans, viewers, and me as a writer can all relate to. Going through experiences that we all understand and then take those people and place them in the most fantastical setting, which I think Game of Thrones really did a great job of doing. Facing difficulties and challenges that are bigger than what we could imagine and things that are more beautiful than we can imagine. That, to me, is the core of fantasy. Real people in a crazy environment dealing with crazy problems. So she, as she had already done the three shows, Daredevil, The Defenders, and Umbrella Academy, she, they approached her, I think they approached multiple people, saying, what would your take be on The Witcher series? And Hisrich responded, to me, it's the story of a broken family. It's the story of three orphans, which I think this is great, who are all living on the margins of society, unsure where to go next, and very sure that they don't need anyone else to help them. They've, they're all in their journeys, and then it's about what happens when they come together and they realize they do need each other, and they realize that perhaps they were even destined to be together. So she, she's got multiple seasons of the series mapped out, apparently, and there is kind of an end, end point, sort of, but leaving things open to let the show grow organically. Uh, according to interviews and the uh, San Diego Comic-Con panel, uh, Henry Cavill, having heard that the series was greenlit, yes. immediately started bugging Lauren, uh, g- descending all of his agents upon him and just demanding that he get the role. So Cavill, as a fan of the games, uh, famously, Cavill was a bit of a chubby nerd before he became Superman. Yes. Let's get into the story of Henry Cavill because I love this as a side note to the whole episode. His mm-hmm. redemption story 
he in his own way is a real life witcher. <laughs> this trouble again. This guy is like really talented at what he does and keeps ending up in these fucked projects and keeps like it's just a, ah, get out of here, Henry Cavill. We don't want your kind. Just to see him thrive in this role is so makes me so fucking happy. He's born to the Channel Islands in Jersey, which I had to learn some things about these. I had no idea what the fuck this was. Jersey. Is that next to Skellige? Is I was that... like, great, another New Jersey guy. No, it is an island off of the coast of Normandy, France, and it's a British crown dependency. So he is British, but he's not in Britain, if that makes sense. His first film and TV work was generally very British, like an adaptation of The Count of Monte Cristo in 2002 and BBC's The Inspector Lindley Mysteries. His breakthrough in You made that up. Nope. The Inspector Lindley Mysteries. You might as well have been like, Professor Marmalade and his quizzical quibbledy. Inspector Lindley, (laughs) would you please join me in my bedroom? (laughs) For a shag. Uh, It's famous for the fact that in every episode, the butler did it. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't get picked up after the first season because it became so obvious. His breakthrough in the States was with a leading role in the Showtime TV series, The Tudors. He said, it's done the most for me to date. Now that there's an audience somewhere in America that's aware of who I am, I have more sellability because of the tutors. Also, much like Sapkowski, he didn't go to school. He didn't have that proper British acting training that so many actors did get coming out of who wanted to pursue it, the theater and 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 film and television. He's he's really he's is a, even though he's so pretty. I mean, <laughs> I, I, it feels weird to call him an underdog because he's like a gorgeous dude or whatever, right? That like. All the ladies want to slam jam, but he really did have a tough time breaking through and especially breaking through to a wider audience outside of England. So through the aughts, Cavill came close to but did not get several big roles, such as an earlier version of Superman, the 2004 Superman film. <laughs> he almost had that and then he, he was cast as Superman and then the, the director switched and went with a different actor. He then came close. Oddly enough, young Henry Cavill does look a lot like Christopher Reeve the yes. same way Brandon Ruth did. Yes. It's very bizarre. Uh, Edward Cullen, he was uh, in Twilight, he he would have gotten, but they it waited too long to go into production. Stephanie Meyer called Henry Cavill her perfect Edward, but, but, <laughs> but the movie, by the time it went into production, he was too old to play the part. Weird. And then... And and Robin Pattinson got it, and Robin Pattinson Robert Robert, Robert Pattinson also got his role in something else. I forget what it was. Bat- but, oh, Batman was he no, also going to be Batman? No, but he was also up against what's his name for Casino Royale. Oh, Daniel James. Craig. Yeah, yeah, he was going to be. So he went from almost being Superman to almost being Edward Cullen to almost being. Uh, You're James just describing Bond. handsome guy roles. You're just, just describing I'm every... Just saying, exactly, but to be number two every single time. Cavill said, I almost left the industry at one point because things just weren't happening. The movies I filmed weren't being released. My projects didn't seem to go that well, and I didn't seem to get much recognition. The most difficult thing was having, uh, having to get over the disappointment of the big roles I just missed. Just constantly. And then he finally gets Superman in Zack Snyder's... Uh, Man of Steel, and then of course Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Of course, they're awful and bombs. Do you want to get fucking bad Twitter mentions? <laughs> it's a uh, it's a complicated tale of uh, Twitter. Release the Snyder cut. <laughs> Release the Snyder cut. I mean, I will. I'll just say they were largely panned. Batman v Superman gave him multiple Razzie nominations, and mm. you, if you know anything about the Razzies, that's all like. The worst movies of the year get nominations. Just and stuff. that that poor, poor CGI mouth. Yes, the whole thing with the mustache Ugh. 
and the CGI mouth for Justice League. Cavill said, putting in the hard work and losing is the tough bit. That is what makes you special. That's what makes you a man. Giving your all, <laughs> losing, getting back up, and giving it your all again because otherwise it would be easy. And in 2018, poor Henry Cavill is announced to play Geralt of Rivia. And I remember... Online folks were being little fuckers about it. They were being little fuckers at the announcement. They released that like uh, costume test image and people got even more fuckity about it because <laughs> the wig wasn't on right. <laughs> and uh, and I was a little bit nervous. I was 100%, uh, uh, you know, I, I was not on board until I started watching. This came out of nowhere. The whole show came out of nowhere for me, so I didn't have a big opinion about it. I enjoyed the games. But I never said to myself, like, man, I really need a TV or film adaptation of these games. I never feel that way. Because they're any not games. an adaptation of these games. They're yeah. an adaptation of the books. They are an adaptation of the books. But I will say this. I do think it's interesting. They definitely pulled things from the games. I think they pulled that, uh, what was it, the Bolivian monk chanting Oh, from the oh, games, uh, uh, his voice even for, said that they came. I, for, I have oh, a yeah. Quote I, on we that. forgot to mention this during the games uh, when we talked about the games. But Cuck a crossover. It's our favorite folk music of all time. <laughs> Bulgarian chanting yes. women folk music yes. is a hundred percent. We mentioned it in the Xena episode. We mentioned it in the Ghost in the yep. Shell episode, and it comes back as part of The Witcher. Uh, the uh, Slavic Polish band Percival, which was actually named after a character from The Witcher books, was brought on board to record a ton of music. For The Witcher, uh, specifically those like rad battle uh, themes that kind of start kicking in. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, Mary. I know it's been a while since I've, I've called upon you. If you can play a couple of seconds of Lazare from uh, the band Percival, this was ended. This ended up getting adapted into some of the battle themes in The Witcher Three. Just beautiful. His accent, Cavill's accent was influenced by Doug Cockle's performance in the game series. Of course it was. Of course it was. And I love that. I love that he's a gamer. And then he, and then he loved the Witcher series. I love when things like these, this serendipity stuff happens. Because I think he's crushing it as Geralt. And, and, and the whole way through. I think he did a, he's done a phenomenal job. I'm so used to him in the games, which in theory take place years and years yes. and years after the events of the of the show, but it's it was weird getting used. To, I he, he he felt too fresh faced to me, but just after so many episodes, just like, mm -hmm. uh, oh, I mean, I just love the, the humor. First, I love the humor of just when the Striga breaks out of the silver chains, yeah. and he's just like, ah, oh, oh, fuck, fuck. That, like, like that is such a Witcher moment. That crude, funny slice of life moment you know like that's anybody at their shitty job when something shitty <laughs> happens <laughs> like and it's so it works so well for me gavel said i really feel a connection to Geralt and who he is and his nature especially from the books and having played the game for many 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 hours it was something that i had a connection with Geralt always wants to do the right thing his goal is to do the right thing make the right choice and protect the people who need protecting but he's also very willing to do some of the necessary harder things that are required Oh, weird. I didn't mention this, but uh, in that first uh, Witcher story, uh, The Weechman, mm. uh, it wasn't the fact that he was a Witcher that made everyone pissed off at him. It was the fact that he was from Rivia. Ah. The idea that everyone was like, oh, you're from fucking Rivia, yeah, aren't yeah. you? And then in the later stories, it's revealed that um, he wasn't from Rivia. It's just a thing Witchers do to like 
claim you're just from some place. It's it's, Uh, that's funny. Like Rivia, he thought was like the Canada of that world. He thought it was an innocuous place. Right. And people actually like dislike him. Yeah. Other casting, by the way, shout outs to Anya Shalatra as Yennefer, who oh is my killing it in this show. Because we're she, talking all about Cavill and the and Geralt, but she gets as much, if not maybe even more screen time than Geralt does in the show. Uh, they cover the uh, events of the story, The Last Wish, which uh, they also kind of go about in the game uh, with the gin and all that. Uh, this woman, Anya uh, Shalatra, so much naked screaming. Yeah. Just so much. At of a it. certain point, I was like, it, it was like, wow. Well, first, obviously, like, wow, what an attractive twenty naked twenty three year old woman. <laughs> and then afterwards, I was like, damn, like she must be very like I, because there's no way that studio wasn't like bone chillingly cold or swelteringly hot. Right. Just how many hours just covered in fake blood, just screaming throughout that entire show. She started out in British theater. Everything. <laughs> she started out in British theater. And first was known for her role in the TV series Wanderlust. She also shout outs to Freya Allen, who plays Siri, another British actress. This is her first major role. And again, she's doing great. That's for the first big role. It's like she did little bit parts before this. So the show was generally panned by critics. But it did become the third most in-demand original streaming service, according to Parrot Analytics. And I think that's changed since. I think it's beaten Mandalorian at this point. Uh, I can't a, remember. In a couple of places, it's like outperformed even Stranger Things. It's like, uh, it's an honest-to-God hit. Poor Lauren Hissrich. Like, she is caught in such a weird sandwich where, on one end, the critic, like the professional critics did not have context for the uh, video games or the books. So this like edgy world that they live in, they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved the fact that like, you know, without really explaining anything, uh, Geralt was using the sign, the hand signs in the middle of combat. Yeah. He was using traps. He was doing, drinking the potions. Without, he was, yeah. I like that too, that it's just, that's, that's his world. That's yeah. what he does. He's doing his job. You know, they just, I for, I didn't, I didn't even read that one entertainment weekly critique. Yeah. Well, that it got super panned because the person said they even skimmed, they did like skipped episode five completely. They, yeah, whatever, you know? Um, and, and it just, I love a situation like this where, we're starting to fight back against some of the critics a little bit. I forget what this happened recently with something else. Everything. Where everything, the critics panned it and then the it became this massive time. success and no one's listening to critics anymore. They're just they're taking it in for themselves. And and I, I think critical reviews are have value, but No, you just gotta find the one or two critics you actually like and stop paying attention yeah. to uh They have value Metacritic. for sure, but it is nice to watch an audience champion something that was initially bad. But then coming from the other side, she gets like uh, almost two nerdy people being like, why is Tris right. black? Right, right. Well, well that blah, stuff's blah, blah. like who gives a, fl- a fine. Fl- it's, like- but it's, she's in this weird sandwich point where like, the people, like both people that I kind of don't care about, are mad at her. I mean, I like sexy redhead, so I was slightly bummed out by it. But I think, I think that the actress they got for Tris is all. She hasn't done a lot. She's mm-hmm. probably going to do a lot more next season. She's great. She's yeah. doing a great job. I'm totally cool she with it. She does what she does in the books, which is get her shit wrecked. Yeah. Uh, during the Battle of uh, Sodom. <laughs> Uh, to bring it all back around, I have this final quote from me, at least, and this is Sapkowski's verdict of the TV show. 
I was more than happy with Henry Cavill's appearance as the Witcher. He's a real professional. Just as Viggo Mortensen gave his face to Aragorn, so Henry gave his to Geralt. And it shall be forever so. I shall be happy if the viewers and readers take anything away, anything that shall enrich them in some way. But of course, he has to end this with such a weird comment. Also, I sincerely hope to leave the viewers and readers hot in every sense of the word. Not tepid, (laughs) not lukewarm. Hot. This was this was a weird one to research. It is it so fun. sweeping, so vast, and yet just, so poppy. I'm just so glad geeky. I had played all of Witcher three and then watched. Uh, had the holiday break to binge the show, so I felt a lot more prepared for it. But I haven't. I'm gonna be honest. Don't get mad at me, because I do intend to go back and check it out. I haven't really read much of the books, just little bits and pieces. But I think I do actually want to check out one of those. Uh, last wish that reader is guides that online yeah and 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 start going through the series because i i love the tone and i really like the author now <laughs> i'm a big fan of this guy he's so funny there's a there's a fun little video that netflix put out of sapkowski talking to lauren Hisrich, and it's just like just two people genuinely like who enjoy this world from very different perspectives yes, completely <laughs> Well, there you have it. That's our episode on The Witcher. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to, check us out on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. I almost forgot. It's been it's it's been it's been a little time, Jake. We're coming back from the holiday season here. Uh, if you want to check me out, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho, streaming all the time. Jake. Quest completed. Tossing it to co-hosts. Follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.